in the last uh, couple of weeks, I put out a message on Facebook, and I just said, hey, what are some of your... You can put up the title slide um, there, Casey. What are some of your uh, misunderstandings that you think there are about in the Word of God or maybe some mysteries that you've always had about something in the Bible or, or in the character and nature of God or, or a scripture that never made sense to you or, or what have you? I, was, I expected, honestly, about three or four people to comment, and I think there was like 45 or 50 comments of people asking really, really good questions. I mean, really good questions. Some of them were just really good and very deep and very thoughtful. And uh, I want to ask you this morning, how many of you have some things, uh, maybe in the Word of God or, or something maybe you've been taught or told that contradicts something you've read, but how many, how many of you have some things that you think uh, are mysteries or misunderstandings about the Word of God or theology? The rest of you are lying. Oh, let's just put it this way. You were too tired to raise your hand. Is that a nice way to put it? Uh, the truth of the matter is, when you think you have it all figured out, and when you think your theology has been perfected, and you stop actually seeking more of an understanding of God and who he is, uh, that's when we die on the vine. That's when the life of God stops coming into our, into our spirit. That's when we as Christians become the C word, cranky. Have you ever met a cranky Christian? No? You haven't? I'll introduce you to some, all right? Have you ever been a cranky Christian? That was a rhetorical question. <laughs> Some of you are just way too honest with us this morning. Well, uh, the truth of the matter is, is that if you find a cranky Christian, you probably have found somebody who believes that they have a lock on theology and that there is no more they can understand about who God is. Oftentimes they have stopped searching uh, the mysteries and, the, and, and a greater understanding of who God is. And so I'm going to be doing a sermon series and, and uh, over the next couple of weeks. And uh, whether my dad knows it or not, I'm going to get him to help me out because he's got such great wisdom. I haven't told him this yet. We're, we're going to be doing a sermon series on some of the great mysteries and misunderstandings in the Word of God. Isn't that good? So if you're a brand new Christian and you've just started reading one of the Gospels or you've been to theological seminary somewhere, um, you should be able to really get something out of this because some of these are going to be more complex than others. But I want to start with something that's at the foundation of our faith um, this morning, and that is the mystery of grace. The mystery of grace. And so I want to show you where in the Word of God specifically that this mystery was revealed. This mystery was unfolded. Of course, it was at the cross, but I want to show you where God made it a point to reveal this mystery. And we're going to learn that in Colossians. I'll tell you a quick story. How many of you have ever, ever heard of a guy, a real obscure character? His name is Albert Einstein. Not so obscure. Albert Einstein uh, was a mess. His hair was a mess. His working space was a mess. His uh, office was a mess. His home was a mess. He oftentimes looked disheveled, looked like he hadn't bathed in a while. Uh, basically, all the things that I am except for the messy hair. 
he, he was a mess. And uh, he just was a messy guy. And uh, there's a story that goes that Albert Einstein was on his way out of town. He was catching the train out of town, as he often did, going to uh, you know, meet with other colleagues or to try an experiment or, or to show something or to meet with business people or whatever it may be, to teach at a school or a college. But he was on his way out of town, and, and it said that he was kind of keeping to himself in the train station, and the train pulls up, and, and they're giving their last call to board the train. And Albert's fumbling around trying to find his ticket. He can't find his boarding ticket for the train. And, and so the conductor comes up and says, hey, are you getting on? And uh, he knew him. He knew him because he was a frequent flyer. He was a freak, frequent traveler. And he said, hey, Albert, are you getting on? And he said, yeah, I, I'm going to get on, but I can't find my ticket. The conductor says, well, I know you, and, and, and you always buy a ticket. I'm not worried about it. Just get on the train. And uh, Albert says, no, 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 you don't understand. I can't find my ticket. He's searching all over and looking under the seat and the bag and in his, in his coat. And the conductor said, Albert, I don't think you heard me. I know you. You're Albert Einstein. You always buy a ticket. It's cool. Get on the train. It's all right. Get on the train. And Albert said, you don't understand. I know that you know me, and I know who I am too, but I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going. i got to figure out where I'm going. Well, I want to tell... I want to preach to you about a group of people who were confused and didn't know where they were going. And the letter um, that was written to them in Colossians was written to a group of people that lived in Colossae. And uh, this group of people were not uh, the typical church that you would write to, oftentimes that Paul would write to. As a matter of fact, this group of people were Gentiles, all of them. Gentiles. This congregation were Gentiles. Now, how many of you in here are Gentile? We're not doing too great with the whole hand response thing this morning, are we? How many of you are Jewish? Well, you're either one or the other, and only about 50% of you raised your hand. So let's try this again. How many of you are Gentiles? All right, now we got it. So most of us, I think there's three or four of us that aren't Gentiles. In other words, you have no Jewish blood. You're not of Jewish descent. You're a Gentile. Now, to you and I today, that doesn't, that's like, okay, I'm a Gentile, big deal. But I want to put in context this letter, this letter that we're about to read in the first chapter. I want to put into context what was going on politically and religiously during this time period. This time period was marked by a lot of unrest, and it was marked by a real chasm between Jew and Gentile. The Gentiles oftentimes were, were described or referred to as dogs. They were so, uh, so looked down upon that if a Jew bought something that a Gentile owned, they would not just physically clean it, but they would have a rabbi come and bless it in order to cleanse the item before they used it. They really believed that the Gentile was unclean, unfit, undeserved, and unaccepted to God. For many reasons. One of them being they didn't follow the form, fashion, or tradition of the law. They, they didn't practice their faith or religion like the Jews did. They didn't go to synagogue with the rabbis. 
they were a different people. Now, to understand the level of hatred between these two groups, it's not really culturally relevant to us today. So I want to date back, if you will. Think about Selma, Alabama. Think about the great unrest that happened during the civil rights movement. Think about the hatred that one group of people had for another just because of the color of their skin. Think about the riots. Think about the demeaning things that were done. The demonic, demeaning things that were done to African Americans. The hatred. Now imagine the level of hatred that's oftentimes been portrayed in movies. Some of you in this room actually lived it, and we applaud you. But think about the level of hatred and unrest that whites and blacks had, especially in the South during this period of time. That's the kind of unrest and hatred that was happening during this time in history between Jew and Gentile. That kind of level of just insanity. So that's what's happening during this letter that's being written. It's pretty, pretty serious stuff. For a Jew and a Gentile to hang out, it wouldn't happen. Gentiles oftentimes didn't hold political office. They didn't, they weren't in authority. They weren't, they weren't at the university. They weren't teaching. Most of the aristocratic positions were held by Jews. You didn't want to be caught as a girl, a Jewish girl, marrying a Gentile. Could mean your life. It was very serious. The chasm, the, the gap between these two groups. You wouldn't be caught in a Gentile's home as a Jew. You'd be scorned from your family and friends. They were dogs. They were unclean. They were unacceptable to God. The amazing thing is, is this hatred, which oftentimes hatred, <laughs> unbelievably, this happens. This hatred was based in religion. It was because they didn't measure up religiously that's where the hatred came from. How many of you have read your history books or maybe you lived it? Some of the hatred by the South, some of the whites in the South, the KKK and other groups, they were fiercely religious people. Yeah. Went to church every Sunday, but Saturday night were lighting a burning cross in somebody's yard. A cross, think about that. A symbol of salvation. They, they believed that they were morally right it was their right, they were in right standing with God for making this statement. That's what was happening with Jew and Gentile. So Paul writes this letter to this group in Colossae, the, the book of Colossians. He writes this letter to this group of Gentiles. He writes it because they don't know where they stand. They're confused because they have Christ, but all of the smart people, the aristocrats, the, the political leaders are telling them they're unclean, they're undeserved, and they're unacceptable in the sight of God. This is what's being told to them. So they're confused because they, they feel like they know who Jesus is and they've accepted him inside. But they don't know what to do. They are, they're lost like Albert, Albert Einstein. They didn't know where they were going. They just were very unsure. And so he writes this letter as a Jew he writes this letter to the Gentiles, and he says this. I'm sorry, not as a Jew, but he writes this letter to the Gentiles, and he says this. You ready for this? I didn't even put it here. It's up here. 
And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, listen to this. You have now, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He's writing this letter and he says, I want to tell you something. You are holy, you are blameless, and you have been accepted as children of God. Keep going. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now listen to this. That is, don't go to verse 27 yet. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Now, I want you to just clearly hear me. I believe wholeheartedly that there are mysteries that have been hidden from past generations. There are mysteries. There are things yet to be revealed that God has not yet revealed. Now, in this time in history, God's pulling back the curtains on something he's never revealed before. Never revealed before. So if prior to him revealing this, you said, I just, my theology is just perfect. I know everything about God. Can't tell me that. That doesn't line up with what I know. And God says, yeah, but I have something yet to reveal to you. And I'm going to pull back the curtain on this mystery. I'm going to show you this mystery I've hidden from ages, from from generations. Now, you have to remember the context of who he's writing this to. He's writing this to the Gentiles, the dogs, the the cast-outs, the ones that nobody cares about. What is this mystery? Verse 27. To whom God willed to make known... What is the riches of the glory of his mystery amongst two? Among the Gentiles. And what is that mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, hold on a second. We're going to get this together. You guys are going to be excited if you're not fake it. All right? He says, listen, I know what you've been told. I know what the religious few have told you. They've said you don't amount up. They said you're not acceptable. They said you're dogs. They said you don't belong amongst us. You'll never be connected to God. But what I'm revealing to you that they don't know, what I'm revealing to you that generations don't know, I'm revealing to you, I'm pulling back the curtain, and I'm letting you know that as Gentiles, amongst the Gentiles, I'm revealing this mystery, and that is Christ in you is the hope of glory. Now, what is the hope of glory? Glory speaks of heaven. It's the hope of knowing I will be in heaven one day. It's the hope of salvation. It's the hope of glory. So listen, this is the ultimate revelation and just reveal that God, you know how you you watch these shows and they have the great reveal and then it goes to commercial and then you got to wait till next week to figure out what's happening. This is the ultimate reveal from heaven. You don't have to wait till the next episode. He shows you and what he's revealing is grace. This is the ultimate revelation of grace. Given the context of the the political and religious strife between these two groups, he makes it a point 
to reveal himself, Christ, and Christ only, to, to, into the Gentiles, into their souls, into their spirits. He reveals himself to them through Christ because it becomes the hope of glory. Now, I'm just going to back up for a moment. We're going to get there, but just hold on a second. I'll read the other scriptures in a moment. I want to talk about Peter for a second. We're switching. Peter. 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 Peter has a vision from God. And the vision from God is these dogs, these, these unacceptable, no good Gentiles who you don't want to hang around or be with. Peter has a revelation. The revelation is this. God reveals to him the Gentiles are acceptable in my sight. Now listen, the truth of the matter is, if we took, I want to be real nice about this, but if we made a culturally relative comparison, most of us in this room would be in that group of Jews. We're believers. We're the accepted ones. And people walking the streets of Sarasota would be the unacceptable ones. And the people in groups that you have written off that we have written off, the people that seem too far gone, the people that have committed the ultimate sins, whatever they are, those that we have cast away, the prostitutes, the ones that have, quote-unquote, ruined their life, that need to be cleaned up before they're acceptable in God's sight. This is what God would be communicating us to us today and is communicating to us today. And that is, I don't care what box you have me in, my grace blows your box away. And the truth is, they're acceptable in my sight. Now, he makes it a point. He doesn't mention baptism. He doesn't mention uh, any other religious form or practice. He doesn't mention the law. He doesn't mention, the only thing he mentions is Christ in you. It's the ultimate refocus back on the one thing, the one and only thing, and that is Jesus. And he says, Christ in you, O unaccepted ones, is the hope of glory. So Peter has this vision. Based on this vision, Peter has now opened his heart, opened his understanding to, oh, wait, these people that we thought one thing about, God's now revealed to me they're acceptable. So he gets an invitation from a man named Cornelius, a Gentile. Look at someone next to you and use that creepy voice and tell them a Gentile. A dirty old Gentile. A Gentile. He gets an invitation from a Gentile to come to his house. Peter. An Italian Gentile. They're the worst. Maybe it was the smell of garlic that made Peter go. Peter is Jew. He is a scholar. He is smart. He is well-respected. He's a religious leader. He's invited. To, he's, he, for, he's a follower of Jesus. And he's invited to Cornelius. Cornelius says, I want you to find that man and bring him here. Now, for Peter to go to his house would be like the equivalent of the grandmaster of the KKK hooking up with the local uh, leader of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and saying, hey, let's hang out for some barbecue or something. It's like, what good could happen from this? I mean, we have our hopes, but the reality is there's some pretty strong beliefs that are getting ready to lock horns. Peter goes to Cornelius' house, and this is what Peter, this is what happens. 
He comes to Cornelius' house with the revelation that the, that the Gentiles have been acceptable to God. And we find this out before. Now, this blows my mind as a little, sweet, little Christian boy raised in church. Before Cornelius and household could express their belief in Christ, before they could declare they wanted to repent of their sins, before they could confess Jesus as their Lord, before they could be baptized into Christ, before all of that, God bore witness to them, that household, the household of Cornelius, and saw them as acceptable in his sight. Pastor Dean, I just... I knew when they made you lead pastor, you were going to start preaching this sloppy grace stuff. This hyper sloppy, super, super soaker grace. I just texted my wife, even though she's right next to me, I texted her and I said, well, we'll be looking for a new church next Sunday. This grace stuff. I knew this grace stuff was coming up. Hey, to label grace as sloppy is to say what Jesus did on the cross, which was the ultimate expression of his grace, was sloppy or haphazard. And the reality is his love and his grace are extravagant. If we understood the more, because I don't think we'll ever have the full understanding of the full measure of God's grace until we get to heaven. I don't think we will. But if we could understand and stop putting God's grace in the box, we could really fully understand all that he has for humanity. And the fact that he is eagerly waiting and anticipating with open arms waiting for the lost and those that felt unaccepted to turn their face back to him and say, Jesus, I need you. We put so many stopgap measures on Jesus's grace in our society. We have so many rules and regulation and forms and fashions and how we can do this. We're going to make, well, first, first of all, how can they get saved if they don't come to church? And we got to get through worship because you can't do an altar call before you do worship. And then I'll give the altar call if the Spirit leads me. Well, so now we've got about a 15% chance that you're going to give an altar call because your heart is only open about 15% of the time. And, uh, and then we, have, we reduce that percentage chance by whether or not the person's going to respond or whether they even showed up to church. And so now we just narrow the opportunity and the chance down for somebody to actually have Christ in them and really have the hope of glory because so, it has to fit in our form and our fashion and our way of doing things. I want to take that and I want to blow it up. Yeah. I want to I take that idea and I want to blow it up. I want to literally blow it up. I want to light it on fire. I want to stomp on it. I want to put it through one of those things where it cuts up the trees and, and then drown it and then pick it up and do it all over again. Why? Because we've contained the radical, crazy grace and love of Jesus in a box when he is eagerly waiting and, and anticipating seeing the world swept into his kingdom. Yep. Well, narrow is the way, and you know, not everybody can come to know Jesus. Yep. But if that was your daughter, you would find room on the path for her. Yep. 
If that was your father or your son, your best friend, you'd be like, oh, it's not too narrow. We can fit one more. The reality is they're people. No matter where they come from, what lifestyle they're living, who they are, Jesus wants them. He sees them and he's crying out to know them. He wants to be revealed to them. So Peter says this in Acts 10, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. This is in the house of Cornelius. He says, all the circumcised believers, that's the Jews. There were six of them, I believe, that were with him. Who came with Peter were amazed. Of course they were amazed. Because God is revealing something that they thought they understood. He's opening the door to another mystery. They were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all, on the Gentiles also. They were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Now think about this. You're sitting there. You're a Jew. You downright believe wholeheartedly you were raised this way, that that you've come along with Peter because he talked you into coming, and you're in the household of these Italian Gentiles. You're thinking to yourself, they should be washing my carriage outside, not sitting equal with me in this house. And so you come along with Peter, and you're like, let's get this done. I don't know what Peter's got this vision. He thinks that they're acceptable. They're not. We know. We know. We've known for thousands and thousands of years they're not acceptable, but this idiot thinks he knows better. And so we're here, but we're not we're not cool with this, but we're here. All of a sudden, God speaks and says they're acceptable, that he sees them and has accepted them. Then the Holy Spirit's poured out on them. Then they begin to speak in tongues and exalt God. And you're like, Peter's like, are you okay? I'm fine. You're looking at the other five and you're like, what is happening? My daddy told me, my granddaddy told me, my rabbi told me, the rabbi's dad told me. They all told me these guys can't know Jesus. They can't know God. They can't be acceptable. Now they're like radically transformed. Now they're radically, they're speaking, they're like, they got the full measure of God. The Holy Spirit, salvation, everything rolled into one. Then Peter answered and said this in verse 47. Surely... After you've seen this, <laughs> no one here, he's, he ain't looking at the house of Cornelius, he's looking at his buddies. No one here can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? It's kind of like that awkward moment in a wedding when they say, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. We really don't want you to speak at that moment. (laughs) It's one of those questions we hopefully already know the answer to. He's like, surely, now after all this, because you have to understand something, the Jews didn't believe a Gentile could be baptized. And for heaven's sakes, if they're going to be baptized, it sure as heck ain't going to be in one of their pools because they're not going to bathe with Gentiles. They're not going to be baptized in the same spot that a gentile. That's, like that's like taking a bath after your dog took a bath in the same water. We ain't doing this. 
and Peter boldly. Why? Because God reveals the mystery of grace to Peter. He reveals through a vision the mystery of grace. And Peter is so convinced and knows that this is the word of God that he does the unthinkable. He looks at the other five of them and he says, surely you five down here are not going to keep my friends here in the house of Cornelius out of the baptism, out of the waters of baptism, since they have received the Holy Spirit just as us. What Peter's communicating is he's saying, hey, you're not going to let your stupid theology and your dumb religious nonsense to prevent these people who you now have seen have experienced the same Holy Spirit that we've experienced to actually get in the waters of baptism because you've been taught wrong and your theology is wrong. You're not going to surely, and your mind has been closed off, surely you're not going to prevent them from being baptized. Now at that point, checkmate, Peter, great job. They don't say a word. They don't say a word. Not a word. My, my thought to you this morning, and I have a story I'm going to read at the end here, but my thought to you this morning is real simple. The mystery of grace, the understanding of the full measure of grace, I don't believe any of us in this room fully understand. When I hear blanket statements about some of these folks that concentrate on preaching grace, like Joseph Prince and others, and I hear these blanket, just like across the board, like you take a machete and just cut through a watermelon, statements about these things, it, it, it really upsets me. And let me tell you why. Because none of us fully have comprehended or understand the nature of God's grace. See, the, this whole series I want to do that I have yet to get my dad on board with, but we're going to, this whole series is not based on us answering every one of your questions or solving every problem. Because there are some things we don't know for sure. All we can do is spark inside of you a hunger to develop with the word of God an understanding of these things and begin to seek God for a greater understanding in your, your life so that you can more accurately represent and reveal who he is to the people around you. Listen, I got news for you. If you don't learn to own your own theology and you just take it from me, I'm wrong at least 20% of the time. If you ask my sister, she'd say I'm right, right 20% of the time. But I, 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 you can take my check to the bank and cash it, but about one out of every five times, the bank's going to go, eh. Okay? I don't want you to cash my checks from the pulpit and that be the only source of your knowledge and income. It's not healthy. You need to know what this says. You need to understand it. You need to seek and desire the wisdom and the understanding from God. Let me tell you something. Goofy Christians happen when they listen to one person and they believe every word they say. There are going to be messages that I preach that I'm, I'm trying to figure it out just as much as you're trying to figure it out. And here's what I feel like the word of God says. Here's what I feel like the, the God is saying. This is the context. This is the understanding. And I might be way off. But this is a journey that we're on to reveal and understand. The, the, where you get in trouble is when you close it off and you say, this is right. I will not listen to anything else. 
My dad preached a great message on this uh, about six weeks ago or whatever during September when the world was coming to an end with the Shemitah and all that kind of stuff and the blood moons and all that. And I'm not making fun of it because I think all those things are significant. But I don't believe that we can predict the day or the time and anybody who thinks they can figure it out is an idiot. And so many of us so many of us, I'm not saying you, but I've got lots of friends I respect on Facebook and, and friends across the world that I know that were preparing for, because they listened to one person. The key, the key to this sermon series and understanding even this topic is that we would dive in collectively as a church. I hope you go home and research what I've told you. Read, read the scriptures, read the context. Look up some historically accurate information about what was going on with the Jews and Gentiles so that you'll own this, so that when you look somebody in the face at your job or on the street and begin to talk about the grace of God, you're not regurgitating something you heard me say, that you're actually speaking from an understanding and something you've got a hold of for yourself and your heart, and you're actually reaching them from an authentic place. My job is not to answer every one of your questions. My job is to, is to encourage you, and my job is to provoke you. If you leave here unprovoked, I failed that Sunday. Give me another shot. I want to provoke you. I don't want you to be, just have your ears tickled and walk out and be like, isn't he sweet? It's just a sweet message. He must said love like 45 times. Just nice. Did you feel good after that, honey? I want you and your wife to fight at lunch over my mess. No, I'm just kidding. I, I want you to leave here going, man, that's, is, that, is that true? Man, I got to figure this out. Is it true that Cornelius, God said he was acceptable and he didn't even do it. What we normally see as the box of salvation. Why did God do that? What was he trying to prove? He's trying to prove that you can't put the grace of God in a box. That the mystery and understanding of his grace is way beyond our means. And if we err as a church on one side or another, we're going to err on the side of grace. We are not going to err on the side of stopping and saying, no, you know what? This, they, no. They got to make a couple. They gotta do. They gotta jump through. At least, can they just jump through one hoop, please? No. The reality is, some folks in this room, when you showed up, people looked at me and looked at my dad like, "Are you gonna let them in?" And the truth is, we are not gonna close our doors to an opportunity to see Christ revealed to somebody and see them receive the hope of glory. The reality is every opportunity we get to reveal who Christ is, we're going to take it. I have more to say, but I want to tell you this story and then we're going to go. It's 1215 and, and that's, that's a good time to let you go. There was a youth minister was actually a full-time pastor now, I read his story, his youth minister, was in uh, theological training for youth ministry. And uh, he was just finishing up, getting ready to go into full-time youth ministry, and he's in a classroom, and it was getting ready to take his last final. And the course was important, and he had to pass this test. 
And um, they were doing all their last minute studying. They were doing everything they could to prepare for the test. They had gotten together in study groups. They had studied individually. They made flashcards. They even got together with a professor uh, half an hour before the class to go over some last minute review. And then the professor said, listen, not everything's coming from your study guide. Some of it's coming from your book too. And so they're last minute cramming in the book because they just focused on the study guide. Some of you have been in that situation before. And they were just so nervous about this test because they heard this professor was hard and they're getting ready to take this final test and they're unsure about what's going to be in it and they've prepared every which way they could think of but they're still unsure going into the test. And the professor says, I'm going to pass out this test and I'm going to lay it face down on your tables. Do not flip it over until I tell you it's time. So they all had their tests out and finally the professor says, okay, you can start. They flip the paper over. And they begin to realize that every answer on the test had been filled out. This is a true story. They get to the bottom of the sheet and it says this, and I want to read it verbatim. This is the end of the final exam. All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. Yeah. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get this A. You have just experienced grace. Wow. All of the preparation that we put ourselves through, that we put others through, the hoops, the cramming, the box, and Jesus says, honey, you can do everything you want, but I took the test, and all that doesn't matter. I took the test. I created the test, and all you've got to do is receive that I did this for you. Amen. That's it. That's the simplest definition of the grace of God I've ever heard, because it has nothing to do with you or what you did or didn't do. For the creator of the test took that test on the cross, why? So that you and I could receive Christ in us, the hope of glory. This is the mystery of grace revealed. Stand to your feet. Let's, um, let's, you know, anytime you stretch people in their theology, we get nervous and we get worried. But I want to I encourage you. I'm going to encourage you when you leave here. I want you to understand my motivation behind preaching this type of message. I, uh, I want to tell you from the bottom of my heart how much I love you. I love this church. I love the people here. You can ask my wife. I, I think about you all the time. I am constantly evaluating whether or not I'm doing the best job I can to help you. But I, I, I also want to be that agent of, uh, of, 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 of the person that provokes you and encourages you to be provoked. That we, I want to become a people that so understand God and his love and his salvation and his grace that we are unstoppable in reaching our city and our community. 
That's what I want. Think of this not just as a place to come and get refueled. We want you to be refueled. I want your passion to be refueled. But I also want you to be trained and discipled and and really given the right context that you can live your life out of. That's my heart's desire. If you're offended by anything I said um, this morning, I'm sorry, that's not my intention. But there's grace for me. So that'll be your first lesson on grace, forgiving Pastor Dan. But that's my motivation. My motivation is that we would be a healthy body of believers, that we would make the right decision. And as, as a part of the leadership team here, I take that responsibility great. Because if we understand this, what's being revealed here, if we really understand this, we walk and we live out of an understanding of this, I promise you everything, all of our relationships, the way that we bring Jesus to people, our whole lives will change based on the understanding of this. You'll be nicer to your spouse. You'll be nicer to your friends when you understand what Jesus did on the cross fully. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that, God, there's these great mysteries, these great, these great things that, Lord, you, you really do want to reveal to us. Lord, if we have an open heart, we're willing to just admit that we don't know it all, that we don't have it all together, that our theology has not been perfected. But, God, we're on a constant journey to discover more of you. And so, Lord, we ask that as we embark on this journey of of understanding the mysteries and some of the misunderstandings in the word of God, that we'll keep an open heart and mind, Lord, that so we could more fully know you. God, I believe that in six months that we could look back and say, I never thought I could know God like this. So, Lord, let us keep an open heart and an open mind and let us understand that no matter who we are, Jew, Gentile, Lord, whether we feel like we're acceptable or not, Lord, whether we feel like we've jumped through the right hoops or not, that Jesus, you have accepted. You want to know us. God, you want to be inside of our heart. And you want us to know what it's like to have the hope of glory. So God, we receive that understanding here this morning. We leave here with a new outlook on the world around us. That we would be, Lord, that crazy grace that we talked about this morning. Your love manifested in this world. In Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. We'll see you Wednesday night and uh, next week at 9 and 1030.